Please turn with me in your Bibles to our text this morning as we read from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. There's clearly a shift from chapter 3 to chapter 4. You know that the chapter and verse divisions were added sometimes late after the, the time that the, uh, the original texts were written by, by the Apostle Paul, as is true for all the Scripture. Later on, uh, in order to divide the texts of Scripture into readings and in order to be able to reference specific places in the Bible, the system of chapter and verse divisions was, uh, was instituted. We often wonder what was the reason for certain divisions at, at certain points. Uh, really, did they re- did they not see the connection that you know? But in this case, there clearly is a a uh, a different theme, a different uh, topic that the Apostle Paul takes up in the beginning of chapter four. Uh, let's read then from First Timothy four one through five. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth." For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it was received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Here we end the reading of God's word. Some of you may know I like to cook. And in cooking, you follow a recipe. Occasionally, I'll be feeling a little self-confident, and I'll decide to make adjustments to that recipe. Maybe add a little here, take away a little there, put in a spice or seasoning or herb or something that the recipe doesn't call for. But in my imagination, I think this, this is improving it. And then I put it all together and cook it, and it comes out, oh, what was I thinking? Throw it all out start over again. And this time, follow the recipe. There are always people, there have been from the time of the Apostle Paul in Timothy's day to this present time, who think they can take God's recipe of grace and goodness and salvation and add something to it or take something away from it and make improvements on it. It's just a a thought. uh, Our Continental Brothers with their Heidelberg Catechism, which, by the way, we are reading through in the evening services. In the the Heidelberg, there's this wonderful little line, and it's kind of a humbling little line in one of the answers to a question, and it says, we are not wiser than God. Well, duh. But we think we are. We think we can make improvements. And that's what Paul is warning against when he writes this passage to his young uh, apprentice, Timothy. Watch out for those who want to change the gospel in some way. Watch out for them. In fact, this is not just a matter of little 
little uh, changes that are inconsequential. Paul says this, they are deceptive spirits and demonic teaching, uh, teaching of de demons. That's how serious this is. Moreover, he, he, he makes no doubt about this. This is not Paul's personal opinion. We all have opinions about the state of the church. We have opinions about the state of our country. This is not Paul's personal opinion about an, an issue that is in the church. He says this, he introduces this by saying, the Spirit expressly says. That's a way of reminding us that this passage, along with, along with everything else in Scripture, is divinely inspired. The Spirit very clearly and forcefully says this is true. Ignore it at your peril. It comes with divine authority and truthfulness. The Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Before we get into the center part of this passage, though, let's talk a little bit about what Paul means by later times. It comes in uh, context in other scripture passages with other terms that kind of point us to something in the future, though not necessarily entirely in the future. Why, by the way, why would Paul be writing to Timothy in the first century and say, watch out for this, if this was entirely in the future? Some people, as soon as they see those words, later times or the last days or, or the last hour, they immediately think it must be all in the future. No, Paul's writing to Timothy because it's happening now and will continue to happen throughout the history of the church until the time that Jesus returns. Something the church from its earliest time during the apostolic age to the present time must be aware of. So in this passage, Paul uses the term later times, the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. There are other passages where Paul and uh, uh, Peter and the writer of Hebrews uh, use the word last days, different, different terminology in the Greek language. And this clearly seems to be pointing not just to the present but also to the future. 2 Peter 3.3 says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. 2 Timothy 3.1-5 uh, says, Now understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Paul could have been writing about our day, couldn't he? But he was also writing about conditions that could exist during his day. But he does seem to be pointing to something that 
develops later on more completely, more fully. By the way, I always, I always uh, when I read that passage, he, uh, Paul is famous for these long lists, and this is one of the longest lists uh, that he gives us. Not a very flattering portrait of human nature, is it? Uh, but he also says this at the end, having the appearance of godliness. In other words, despite all of these self-centered and all of these troublesome uh, 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 difficulties and sinful uh, uh, expressions that human beings have during this time of the last days, they still have a religion. Uh, you, have you noticed today we don't talk, people, people who kind of don't want to really be identified as Christians, but they want to say we have a type of spirituality. And my spirituality is very important to me. I have no idea what I believe, but my spirituality is important. This is exactly what Paul is talking about when he says they have a, an appearance of godliness, but denying its power. He says, avoid such people. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Now, in all three of these passages, the Greek, for, uh, the Greek words are exactly the same. But you notice the Hebrews passage is actually talking about something that's contemporary, actually something that's happened already, and yet the writer of Hebrews says it's in these last days. Now, there's different contexts, and so the writer of Hebrews is writing in a different context. But both Peter and Paul are looking to the future, the present, and projecting it into the future. The Apostle John uses an interesting term in a similar context. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, he says this, Children, it is the last hour. Now, that sounds more definite and more urgent, doesn't it? It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. I save that passage for last because in, in some ways this passage from 1 John ties back to the passage in 1 Timothy. John says that there were people among us in the church, in the visible church, who went out from us and thereby, and what he means is they left. They left. They began teaching strange doctrines. They began subverting the faith, and they left. And in their leaving, they demonstrated the reality of their spiritual condition. They were among us, but they were not of us. They were part of the visible church, but they were not part of the elect. The visible church has always been, some, to some extent, a mixed multitude. We don't know with 100% accuracy those whose profession of faith is true 
and those who will fall by the wayside. But John points out that there were some among us who have left us and have become antichrists. I won't take time to getting into, well, maybe just a minute. John has a very clear understanding of what antichrists are. They deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. They deny the incarnation of the Son of God. Of course, that's an essential part of the gospel. It's an essential teaching of Scripture. Antichrists deny this central fact of the incarnation of the Son of God. But notice what John says. There are many antichrists who have gone out. These are the ones who were part of us at one time but have gone away and have left, have started teaching false doctrines. But he also makes a distinction between antichrists, of which there are many, and antichrist, of which there is one. He uses both a singular and a plural. There is an eschatological figure on the horizon that John refers to, but even now, if you if, if you like uh, the story of uh, Gru and Despicable Me, remember the minions? Antichrist has its minions. And they're already out there doing their thing, denying truth, teaching falsehood. John uses that term, the last hour. Eschatos ora, the last hour. There's also another term that is used in Scripture, somewhat different, but it's the day of the Lord. And as that theme, that concept of the day of the Lord grows and becomes more complete as Scripture goes on, it's a progressive revealing of what this day of the Lord is. Paul warns the Thessalonians not to be taken aback as though the day of the Lord had already come or was right about to happen. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Other translations use a slightly different phrasing there, uh, to the effect that the day of the Lord is at hand, happening right now. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, the Greek word behind this is apostasia, it's where we get our concept of apostasy. It literally means a falling away from the faith. The rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. These are all statements about the spiritual state of affairs during the latter days, the last days, the last hour, and preceding the day of the Lord, which concludes the last days. I want you to notice something that is common in all of these descriptions. None of them is a description that is positive. None of them says things are going to be getting better and better all the time, does it? None of them. They all look at the declining spiritual condition of mankind, an increase in godlessness, a general rebellion accompanied by a revealing of a man of sin, or uh, in, in the other, in John's terminology, an antichrist. And then the day of the Lord comes when Christ returns, and there's a resurrection and a direct intervention by the Son of God in earth's history. 
the last days, the latter days, as we put this all together in our food processor and, and blend it together and come out with a concept, the last days and latter days encompass the whole span of time from the ascension of Christ to his second coming. Even, but, but here's a way of kind of putting him into their proper order, that it does encompass this whole span of time. But you've probably heard me say it, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it many more times because repetition is necessary. Even the latter days have last days, and the last day has a last hour, and the last hour leads to the day of the Lord. There's a progression encompassing our whole span of time. In this context, Paul warns about deceptive demonic teachings that will come during this time. They are already here, and they will get worse. Well, what is this teaching? We've kind of set the, the time frame here and this concept of later days, last days, last hour, and so forth. What is the specific teaching that Paul refers to? And I would say this, these specific teachings have something in common. He talks about marriage and talks about forbidding food, forbidding marriage and forbidding certain foods. They have something in common. The way they are taught appeals to an element of our fallen nature. Remember the illustration about making adjustments to the recipe? Our fallen nature always wants to make adjustments to God's recipe. We want to add our own. We want to fiddle with it. See if we can improve it. And the implication of that is this. What God has done is not enough. What God has done is not enough. I must make changes. I must add to it. I must make my own contribution to God's work. The fallen nature always wants to add our own contribution to the work of God so that we can make a claim of righteousness on our own. It robs God of his glory and Christ as his, in his unique place as our mediator, our Lord, and our Savior. Paul first lists forbidding marriage. Why would you forbid marriage? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. It was created by God. The institution of marriage comes during the time of creation. Remember how God says at many points during the creation week, it is good. He saw, he, he saw what he had done, and it was good. It was good. At the end of the sixth day, he says it was very good. And then he says it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a suitable helper. He makes Eve, and he brings them together and establishes husband and wife marriage for his glory and for the accomplishment of his purposes. But some will arise who say, well, maybe marriage isn't the best. Hmm. But marriage is the creation ordinance of God. It is part of his good creation. It is holy in his sight and to be kept holy by us. 
Now, we can actually see throughout history how some of this has, has taken place. Yes, there were, in, even in Paul's day, certain esoteric cultic groups. Some of them were, were Gnostic uh, groups that uh, advocated uh, denying yourself certain things to, in some way, uh, discipline yourself for a higher way of life a higher way of life, a spirituality that has no actual power. But even in the church, remember, Paul is writing in the context of the church's life, this warning comes. Even in the church, during uh, uh, going back to very early in the church's history, let's go back to the 300s, 4th century, some attempts were made to require priests and ministers to remain celibate, to deny marriage. But not until 1139 A.D., 12th century, did it become an official decree of the whole Roman Catholic Church. Under the Pope there at a council, it was officially decreed that people ordained to the diaconate, ordained to the priesthood, bishops, and so forth, on up the line, must remain celibate. They must remain unmarried. Why was that? Celibacy was held out to be a, a higher form of spirituality, a higher form of, of godliness and holiness, to refrain from the fulfillment of those desires that we associate with marriage and with husbands and wives. No, no, we are called to a higher honor. We are, we are married to Christ. What's happened? Something that God made as holy and to be used for his glory in the accomplishment of his creational plan has now been cast aside under the guise of a super-spirituality. Higher degree of consecration and holiness required for some. There have also been historically cultic groups, and some churches even in our own day, who deny marriage, forbid marriage. Again, there's something higher. Well, Brothers and sisters, there's nothing higher than what God has created for our good and that he himself has declared as holy and according to his will. There may be times like the Apostle Paul's life where he needed to remain free uh, to do his traveling, to, to bear the burdens that he, that he bore, the sufferings that he bore, but Peter, on the other hand, oh, the first pope. Hmm. Peter, on the other hand, was married. I guess God hadn't made that clear to the first pope. I'm being a little sarcastic. What about abstaining from food? God created food for man and animals to eat. At first, in the Genesis account of creation, we see that plants were given to Adam and Eve for food. And after the fall, after the flood specifically, God said that Noah and his descendants could partake of meat as well. 
Paul reminds us in this very passage that food was created to be received with thanksgiving, and it is good. It is to be received with thanksgiving and glorifying God. But, of course, some people know better. Some people believe they are indeed wiser than God. Some have always tried to say that abstention from certain foods indicated a higher degree of holiness and dedication. Uh, There was both the influence of Gnostic Stoicism in the early church, and there was the remaining influence of ceremonial Jewish laws, which distinguished between clean and unclean food in the early church. Peter had to learn that lesson, didn't he? When God wanted him to go to Gentiles and bring the gospel to the Gentiles, Peter, well, we would have resisted. So God had to teach him, what I I have declared clean, you should not say is unclean. Again, we can see some uh, evidence of this even in a large institution such as the Roman Catholic Church of abstaining from some foods, certain days of the week, certain times during the year. I can also see it. I had a neighbor up in Big Bear who was a a minister in the Seventh-day Adventist church. He was adamant that eating meat was not God's will, that we should be vegetarians. In fact, if if you deny that, you were part of Antichrist. Oh, he 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 was a fire breather. We got into it a couple days. I was out walking my dog, and friendly, yeah, said hi, and oh, nice to meet you. And we started talking, found out I was a Presbyterian minister, and he's a Seventh-day Adventist minister. And about five minutes later, he's basically calling down God's judgment on me because we eat meat. I don't know about you, but I love brisket, so, oh well. God made it good. It's to be received with thanksgiving for his glory. Again, there's this subtle undercurrent. We can make our own contribution. We can improve God's plan. And this, brothers and sisters, is where the deceptive teaching and the demonic teaching comes in. It is. Recognize it for what it is. It is a subversion of God's grace. It is a subversion of God's sufficiency to save us in his way. If you take nothing else away today, remember this. We are called to live by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. To add to that plan of salvation that God has given us in Christ, to to add our own contribution of an imaginary self-righteousness or higher degree of spirituality, a higher degree of dedication, that somehow, and this is where it begins to subvert, somehow that's my brownie points. That's my merit. I have earned a higher favor of God because I have done certain things. The higher form of godliness that is advertised in these teachings 
becomes a meritorious work on our part that gains acceptance from God. It is a denial that grace working through faith in Christ alone is enough for us to be made right with God. Why did I read Romans 5 today as our assurance of, of, of pardon? Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Not since you've been justified by faith plus a little contribution of your own. I'm going to take you again through several passages of Scripture. Most of these are from Galatians. Now, Paul was dealing with a specific problem with the Galatian churches. There's not one Galatian congregation. There are actually several congregations in the region of Galatia that had been affected by a teaching where people had come in and basically said, you need to keep the Mosaic ceremonial law. You need to be circumcised. You need to observe the, the calendars. You need to observe the days and, and so forth. All of these things. And it, it had an effect upon the Galatians. But underline whether you're talking about the, the, the imposition of the Jewish ceremonial law or these pagan ideas of Stoicism and Gnosticism, as they come in, they all share this, that I have to make my own contribution. So reading from Galatians, we can apply what, we can apply what Paul says about this controversy in the Galatian churches to the broader principle of man always trying to add something of his own to God's work, and thereby denying the sufficiency of God's plan of salvation. And point, let's make the, this the fine point. It comes down to this. Remember what I said last week, Jesus is the answer to every question. Jesus is sufficient for every sinner. He and he alone is sufficient. And I want you to see how Paul makes this point about the sufficiency of Christ to the Galatians. Underlying issue is the same as he writes to Timothy. Here's how he deals with the Galatians, though. Same underlying issue. Galatians 1, 6 through 8. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Notice there's no gray area here. It's a different gospel. You've ruined it. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Galatians 2.16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Galatians 2, 20-21 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Galatians three twenty-seven through 29. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's offspring and heirs according to promise. Galatians 4, 8 and 9. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who, that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Galatians 5.1 For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let me just go back to that Galatians 4 passage where Paul talks about you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, he seems to be broadening out the question here. In Galatians, remember, he's dealing specifically with the question of the imposition of Jewish ceremonial laws as a necessary aspect of your justification, a necessary requirement for justification. But he, he seems to be broadening it out in Galatians 4 when he talks about now you have come to know God or rather be known by God. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? I think there are two passages in the New Testament that Paul uses this, this idea of the weak elementary principles of the world. He's going beyond the question of the imposition of Jewish ceremonies as a necessary requirement. He's He's looking even at the Gentile world, and he's saying, in the world, the whole world, there is this impulse. There is this impulse to try to work out your own religion according to weak principles that are powerless to save you, but arise from your own fallen nature. It is why man always invents religions of works righteousness, whether Jew or Gentile. The Jews distorted the gospel that they had in the Old Testament into a religion of works righteousness. The Gentiles create their own religions of works righteousness. Taking all of this together, brothers, here is the bottom line. And again, I, I urge you, write this on the tablet of your heart. Memorize this. Keep this close to you and on guard against all temptations to change what God has ordained as his way of salvation. God's grace is sufficient. Do not deny grace by seeking to add your own merit. Faith is sufficient. Do not deny the sufficiency of faith by adding your own works. Christ is sufficient. He is the fountain of grace. He alone is our Savior. He alone is the source of our righteousness. Do not deny the sufficiency of Christ by seeking acceptance with God by other means. This is the gospel found in the sufficiency of God's grace the sufficiency of faith by which we lay hold of Christ, and the sufficiency of our Savior, the Son of God, who came into our world and lived as one of us so that he might be the faithful high priest 
delivering those that God had given to him and presenting them on the last day as his people, perfected by his work. Do not deny the sufficiency of grace and faith and Christ. That is what we do when we try to add something of our We are saying Christ is not enough. Faith is not enough. Grace is not enough. This is the gospel. Do not accept substitutes. This is the warning that Paul gave. This is a warning that still comes to us today. In remembering the sufficiency of God's plan of salvation, we're actually also then glorifying him. One more passage from Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians 1, 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Grace and peace to you from God and from the Son, the Lord Jesus, the Father and the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ who gave himself for our sins. We cannot atone for our own sins. We have no merit to offer to deliver us from this present evil age. Hmm. There's that kind of negative note again, isn't there? According to the will of God our Father. And why? What's, how does this all wrap up into a, a package at the end of this passage? To whom be the glory forever and ever. Faith in Christ alone glorifies God. Receiving Christ by faith glorifies God. Trusting in the grace of God glorifies him. Pray. Heavenly Father, please teach us to trust in you completely and only. There are certain things that cannot be tampered with. The Scripture is a sufficient revelation for us. Grace is sufficient. Faith is sufficient. Christ is sufficient. And when we observe all of these things, we give glory to you, that all glory may be yours and none of our own. We pray, Father, that you would give us confidence in your way, not in our own strength. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.